We're out of series today because I want to talk to you about something that's so important that it just sort of is a standalone. And I want to talk to you about the thing that God wants from you more than anything else. And for anyone who might be new to exploring God, let me let me let me let you know real quickly. It's not that God wants money from you. It's not that He wants you to become a better person. Although those things may have their place, but God has always wanted one thing more than anything else, and that is faith. God wants faith. When you study the Old Testament, you'll see the people who had faith in God were blessed by God. When you study the life of Christ, Jesus was always looking for faith. If you look at how he talked to his disciples, he never criticized them for not preaching a good sermon or not singing a good song. He criticized them because there was an absence of faith. In fact, Jesus talking about the future and the time that you and I live in, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, Jesus is concerned that when he returns, there will be a deficit of faith. And because faith is so important, in fact, faith is the most important thing, when you study scriptures, you'll discover the difference between heaven and hell is your believing. I mean, over and over and over, Jesus said, believe. John three sixteen, most famous verse in the Bible, whoever believes, believe on the, on the, on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, Acts 16. Believe, 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 believe. Never do or perform, but always believe. So let's talk about that today. Let's talk about faith and what role it plays in our lives. I grew up in church, and I listened to a lot of preachers when I was growing up. And one of the most frustrating expressions that preachers use, and a lot of you don't come from a faith background, and in some ways, um, I think you have an advantage over those of us who grew up in church and heard crazy stuff. But I used to hear a lot of teaching about the difference between head faith and heart faith, or head belief and heart belief. And I was a kid sitting out there trying to make sense of it, and I thought, I have no idea what they're talking about. In fact, I've heard, listen, I'm going to write a book someday on stupid stuff I've heard in church. (laughs) The only problem is it would just take so many volumes. Um, I've actually heard ministers when I was grew up, especially evangelists, say the difference between heaven and hell is 12 inches, the difference between your head and your heart. And I'd be sitting out there thinking, your heart is a pump in your chest. It's a complex thing, but I have no idea how it believes. Well, let me try to be practical and explain what I think these ministers are trying to say. It's not the difference between head faith and heart faith. It's the difference between thinking and believing. See, I can think something's true, but it doesn't change my life. When I think something true, it's an opinion. I may think that the Bible is God's word, but that's an opinion. I may think that Jesus is God's son, but that's simply an opinion. It may not get into the groundwater of my life. I may think that God is good, but that doesn't mean it'll get me past a hard time. See, the moment I believe something, I account it as fact. It becomes part of my spiritual accounting process to where it is fact in my life. And when something is fact in your life, well, take the F off, you act on it. Fact makes you act. And that's the difference between what I think these preachers were trying to say, the difference between head faith and heart faith. It's the difference between thinking something is true and accounting it as fact and actually believing it. So when the Bible talks to us about faith, what it's talking to us about is our believing, accounting as fact what God says. Now, the reason why I want to tackle this today is a lot of us have a Hollywood version of faith, or we have a Hollywood definition of faith. And by that, I mean if you go to the movies and you see a movie about faith, it's somebody who believes something so much that they made it come to pass. That's bogus. There are people that actually are in churches today that think if you believe something enough that you will make it happen. That's not faith. 
Let me ask you, I would never ask you to do this, but suppose I said, have faith in me. And again, I'm just, just an illustration. I wouldn't ask you to have faith in me. I want you to have faith in God. But if I ask you to have faith in me, you would want to evaluate two things real quickly. First of all, you would want to evaluate my character. How trustworthy am I? And secondly, you would want to evaluate what I say. Am I a truth teller? Now, when I tell you to have faith in God, I'm not saying believe that something you want is going to happen. I mean, if I ask you to have faith in me and all you had to do was to believe something about me to make it happen, I would ask you to believe that I could lose 30 pounds and get my hair back. (laughs) But you understand that's not faith. So when we have faith in God, and that's where you do need to put your faith, then you're going to have to evaluate two things, God's character, what is his character, and number two, what he says. You and I can never have faith in God by the biblical definition unless God has given us his word. When God gives us his word, then we have the opportunity to bank that and account that as fact and actually begin to live out our lives based on that. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about faith, we're in one of three places. We're in a place where we're sort of in and sort of out. We're not, we, don't have, we don't have complete faith in God. We're like the, you know, like the story of the old guy who flew for the first time. On an airplane, his daughter said, what was the flight like? He said, well, I was kind of scared. I never did put my whole weight on the thing. And, and there's some of us that <clears throat> we never put our whole weight on God's word. And, and here's the worst part about it. We sort of salad bar it. When we want to believe God, we believe God. When God tells us something that goes against the grain of public culture or public thinking, then we sort of, we're sort of cosmopolitan faith people. We're, we're God followers when it's cool. We're not God followers when he tells us something that we don't want to hear. We're going to talk about that kind of faith. And then there's a second kind of faith that really excites me. And the reason why I've chosen this sermon and this story today is we just announced a whole new kids facility. This story is going to be about a kid who is a hero because she has true faith in God. She has a faith in God that changes her life. And so you could be there today, and and I hope many of you are. You're people who have faith in God. The only thing is that faith is being tested and challenged, and you're concerned today about whether or not your faith is going to hold up uh, in marriage trouble or hold up because you lost your job. And so we'll talk about that today. And then the third picture of faith that we're going to see in our story is someone who is a seeker. And you don't quite have faith in God yet, but you're exploring And so we'll look at all three of those today, and I want to take you, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you don't have your Bibles, you can like fire up your iPhone and with your Bible app and get to 2 Kings chapter 5, because I want to read a long story. I don't usually read this much in church, but today I want to read you a long story because you're going to need to see how this story plays out because I want you to meet three characters. Tell you real quickly, I want you to meet the king of Israel, I want you to meet a little girl, and I want you to meet a Syrian general whose name is Naaman. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Hang on, we're going to read for a little while. The king of Aram. It's interesting because Syria is in the news right now. That means Syria. Some of you have a translation that says Syria. The king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram or Syria great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. At this time, the Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day, the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go see the prophet in Samaria, that's Israel. He would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him, and I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying gifts, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. 
The letter to the king of Israel said, with this letter I present my servant Naaman. I want you, <laughs> the king of Syria didn't understand, I want you to heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, this man sends me a leper to heal? Am I God that I can give life and take it away? I can see he's just trying to pick a fight with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there's a true prophet here in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha just sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you'll be healed of your leprosy. There's the word from God. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call in the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, as capital of Syria, aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abon and the Farpar, better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he just says simply, go wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him as the word of God had come to him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him, and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord God lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. And then Naaman, you got to remember, Naaman doesn't come from Israel. He doesn't really understand the true worship of Jehovah, but this is kind of cute. I like this. Then Naaman said, all right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with dirt from this place, and I'll take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord. Notice, Lord, there is in all caps. That's always a reference to Jehovah. However, May the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master, the king, goes into the temple of the god Rimmon, false god to worship there, and he leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow to. Oh, that's a great story. Let me introduce, first of all, the king of Israel. I hope that you read through the Bible, but when you read through the books of the kings, and I love the books of the kings, there are six of them, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. When you read about all the kings, it can look like there are two kings on the throne at the same time. It gets a little confusing. And you will discover that there was a king in Israel and a king in Judah, and you're thinking, wait a minute, I don't understand how one nation can have two kings, and you're very smart to notice that. Because what happened was the nation that we know of as Israel split after the death of Solomon. King David and King Solomon, his son, reigned over Israel in the glory days. But Solomon went off the rails late in life. Um, he started very wise, asking God for wisdom, but in the end of his life, because he was so affluent, he got off into craziness. And one of the things he got off into was sex. He had 700 wives and 300 what we call concubines that were just women there for his pleasure. No man needs 1,000 women in his life. But aside from that, many of these ladies came into his life from other cultures, and they brought their worship of their gods with them, and Solomon tolerated that. And so Israel, which started out under David in the worship of Jehovah, became conflicted about worship. And 
In fact, it was so bad that some of Solomon's wives came from a place where they worshipped a god called Chemosh or Molech. And those gods were just big, hollowed-out furnaces where people burned their children alive in the hopes of appeasing their god. Hard to believe that such a thing could come to Israel. But on top of that, Solomon got crazy when it came to spending projects, too. And so he taxed the people heavily in order to fund his projects. Some things haven't changed in 3,000 years. But when Solomon died, the people loved him, of course. He was very special to them. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, came to the throne. And there were wise people who came to young Rehoboam, and they said to him, Hey, we loved your daddy. He was a great man. But he got kind of crazy toward the end, and he started taxing us real heavy and doing these awful things. So would you please just kind of lighten the load and cut taxes? And so Rehoboam said, come back in a few days and I'll give you my answer. Well, the first thing he did was he talked to the older men who had assisted his dad. And they said to Rehoboam, listen to these people. They love you. They're not trying to hurt you. They're just saying, you know, let's be more reasonable about things. And then Rehoboam went to the young guys that he grew up with. And of course, Rehoboam grew up a spoiled kid, you know. And so he went to these, you know, these guys he came up with and said, what shall I do? And they said, hey, don't let these people push you around. You go back and tell them, you think my dad was tough. I'm going to really be tough on you. And so Rehoboam went out and he smarted off to all these people. And guess what? They just said, goodbye. Ten tribes. Ten tribes of Israel went and became what was known as Israel. And two tribes were left over to the family of David, which is known as Judah, the southern kingdom. So that's why when you get into the books of the kings, there's a king in the northern kingdom and a king in the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom is usually called Israel or Samaria. Southern kingdom is Judah. But one thing you'll discover as you read the stories of the kings is that the northern kingdom never had a good king. And there's, that wasn't by accident. From time to time, the southern kingdom would have a good king, Hezekiah, Josaphat. But the northern king, the first northern king said that his concern was that the people would get nostalgic during celebration times. And since Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom, he was afraid they would want to go back to the temple. So he sort of made up his own worship system. He put a golden calf at the northern border and a golden calf at the southern border, and he said to them, we can still worship Jehovah, but we can kind of make up our religion as we go. In fact, (laughs) it's kind of interesting. The king of Israel said, it's too much for you to go back to Jerusalem. Hey, guys, let me tell you something. Always be cautious about letting convenience be your guide when you're worshiping God. Because if what you do for God is based on your particular convenience, that's not the true worship of God. That's an idolatry. And that's what happened to the people of Israel. Now, by the time... This king rolls around. His name is Joram. Um, He is in a succession of bad kings. But we read a very interesting thing about Joram, and this is in 2 Kings chapter 3. The Bible says he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother. Now, if you know Bible history, his father and mother were Ahab and Jezebel. They were two of the wickedest people that ever lived. And I find it significant that Joram, Joram is like a lot of people today. He was like not as bad as his parents, but he didn't serve God either. Now, the thing that troubles me about American Christians today is that's what I see a whole lot of. It's like, I sort of worship God, but not if it affects my sex life. You know, I sort of, I sort of worship God, but then, you know, I've got multiple sex partners in my life. I sort of worship God, but, you know, and I'm uncomfortable with what the Bible says about sexuality. Or I sort of worship God, but, you know, I'm sort of, I, I sort of like, I, I make it up myself. 
I've got a religion that sort of factors in God when I want to factor in God, but when I want to live the life of a narcissist, I don't have any problem with that either. What's the problem with that kind of life? Let me tell you. And this is why this message is so heavily on my heart today. As pastor of this great church, I meet New Springers all the time who are going through what we would call the storms of life. Things that they didn't encounter. Phone calls in the middle of the night that they didn't expect to get. Diagnoses from the doctor that changed their whole world. And by the way, guys, that's coming for all of us. I'm not trying to be negative today, but I'm telling you, all of us are going to be tested. We're just going to have stuff happen in our lives that's painful. And here's the problem with having one foot in worshiping God and one foot out. There is no power for living when those moments come. There's no power for the test. See, thing of it is, if you're just having a pretty easy life right now, you can sort of pull off that thing of sort of worshiping God and sort of worshiping yourself, but there's going to be a crisis that's going to come in your life. And if you're not fully devoted, to, if you're not a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, the problem is you're going to cave in that moment without any spiritual power, any spiritual muscle to get through that moment. And that's, what's hap- that's, what, that's what happens to Joram here. I mean, he's, he's not as bad as his parents, but he's not fully worshiping God. But all of a sudden, he gets a test. The king of Syria sends his top general. And by the way, let me give you this in today's money terms. The king of Syria sent $3 million in gold, $220,000 in silver, and a bunch of Armani suits. And said, heal my guy. Well, if you're Joram, what are you going to do? I mean, you're under pressure. Syria's got the most powerful army in the world. He's terrified of Syria. And the king of Syria is setting him up. And and look at this. I mean, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, this man sends me a leper to heal. Am I God that I can give life and take it away? Look at this. I can see that he's trying to pick a fight with me. Is he trying to pick a fight? No. I mean, this is so interesting. This is the king of Israel's opportunity to have long-term peace with a primary enemy. And yet he says, oh, he's just trying to pick a fight with me. I feel, to be honest with you, I feel sorry for Joram. I mean, he knows politics, he knows pop culture, but when a life and death question is before him, he's clueless. And guys, could I just say I love you very much, but for those of you who have one foot in serving God and one foot out, you may be able to pull that off on a sunny day, but there are going to be storms that are going to come in your life, and you're not going to have any strength to pass the test. And the problem is you'll start getting frantic at that moment to pray and ask God. And I'm not saying God won't help you, but the problem is there's just no strength built up by following God. See, faith is what moves God. And Joram doesn't have real faith. He's got a religion that he's made up. Well, let's talk about the second person in our story because she's my favorite. We never know her name. She's a little girl. Oh, I wish I knew how to preach because I would preach these next two things to us today. The first thing I notice about this girl is her love. Now, work with me. Naaman, her boss's husband, is the general responsible for the invasion that probably killed a lot of adults in this little girl's town. And on a personal note, this general was responsible for the invasion that had pulled her away from her home, displaced her, made her a refugee in Syria, 
and ultimately she became the servant of the wife of the man who had caused all this. Now, she hears, and you know how things are in a household. I mean, I'm not sure it was public knowledge. But she gets it through the hushed tones that were spoken in the house that she served that her boss's husband, Naaman, the general who had led the invasion, has leprosy. As we'll discuss in just a moment, leprosy is the worst thing that could happen back in that world. And let me ask you a question. If you're that little girl and you hear that your boss's husband who's responsible for the invasion that caused your life to be turned upside down, when you hear that he has leprosy, how do you feel about that? I mean, a lot of Christians I know would say, bless God, that's the justice of God. But no. I mean, this little girl, even though, even though these people have changed her life, she still loves them. I mean, she goes to her boss and says, I just wish Mr. Naaman could be in Israel because if he could be in Israel, there would be a man who could heal him. And then the second thing that I'm blown away, blown away by is her faith. Now, if you hear that story and you heard how I started this message, you could say, okay, um, this little girl believes that God can heal people. Um, that's good. Listen, you don't even know the beginning of it. Let me tell you why. Jesus is going to weigh in on this story 800 years later. He's going to talk. He doesn't mention the little girl, but he's going to talk about the story. But this, what Jesus is going to say has so much to say about the faith of this little girl. You ready? Watch this. This is in Luke 4, 27, 800 years later. Many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman. Can, can you connect the dots? One of the greatest abilities in life is to be able to connect the dots. Can you connect the dots? Jesus just said that this little girl believed something that she had never seen happen. She believed in something she had never heard about. Her faith in the power of her God was so great that she just said, if my boss could be in Israel, there is a prophet there who could heal him. Now, wait, let's, let's keep connecting the dots. How does this work? I read to you a text out of Luke. Matthew tells the same story. What happened was Jesus was in his hometown, and he made this statement that he could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. That's when Jesus references the story of Naaman. So he's in his hometown. He couldn't do much there. Why? Because they didn't have any faith. Now walk that back 800 years to this little girl who has faith that God can do something that she's never seen. Let me ask you, at the end of this story, Naaman is going to be healed from his leprosy by the construct that Jesus has just built for us. What was the single act that led to Naaman's healing? I can walk it back to the faith of this little girl. I mean, if Jesus could not do many things there because of their unbelief, and he references the fact that the only leper cure back during this time was Naaman, then the only person I can look at who had faith in God was this little girl. By the way, I mean, I, I, get, I get off on this. I love this. This is a story of two kings, two powerful nations, two mighty armies, and a military legend, and yet this whole story is pivoting on the faith of a little girl. And by the way, the, the Hebrew word for girl there means a girl, a female between the age of... of um, 
infancy and adolescence. And then with the word little there, it means she's probably tilting toward being very young. If you wonder why kids' ministry is so big to us at New Spring, it's because we don't believe people have to be 12, 13 years old to start having faith in God. Now, I get excited when I hear about some of our elementary kids starting Bible studies in their school. And not, 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 not adult-led, kid led, elementary age kids-led. I mean, here's the thing. And I don't want to get off on this because, you know, when God called Samuel, he was a little boy. And the reason he called Samuel, he couldn't get an adult's attention. It may be real easy for us to think that the really great spiritual stuff goes on this room, but I don't know that that's true. It could be over in Adventure Avenue. It could be over in 252. It could be in the wire this morning where God is finding faith. He, he may have to talk to some of our kids because he can't get our attention. We're too much in love with this world. I mean, thing about it is, parents, I just want to challenge you this morning. How do you know that you're not raising the next Esther? A little girl running around your house in pink and purple, how do you know that she's not the next Esther that will turn America around, who will stand in some sort of power center and say, as Esther did, if I perish, I perish? How do you know that that little boy running around in your house is causing you so much grief? How do you know that that little boy won't be the next Elijah to stand up on some caramel of America and say, if God is God, then worship him? I mean, we take seriously kids at New Spring. I mean, it's not just a jargon thing. Look at our budget. Look at how we set up New Spring. I mean, it is targeted to reach kids because I believe that kids can have great faith. <laughs> you know, we had kind of, when, when you've been in a church like I have for almost 32 years, there are a lot of stories that you watch develop over time. We had a young man come back home to Wichita the other day uh, for a funeral. And I haven't seen this young man since he was a kid a teenager at least. You ever know kids that just sort of like they're mischief magnets? I mean, honestly, I remember him when he was three years old. And if there was trouble, he'd get into it. I remember one time we were having a service and his dad had to take him out and he was screaming at the top of his voice, he's going to kill me, he's going to kill me. <laughs> I can tell you as a pastor, when you have that happen, you may as well dismiss because you're finished there. <laughs> I mean, honestly... When we took this kid anywhere, he's going to get into mischief, whether it was camp and our youth conference. You know what he's doing now? He's in the late 20s. He's planning churches in Florida. I mean, here's the thing. You don't know, parents and grandparents, you don't know who you're raising. You may be raising the next champion. And I'm excited, not only for the faith of this little girl, but there had to be some adults in her life who taught her that God is able. And that's why when I talk about a building today, that's why I'm not squeamish about saying, let's go, let's go build something first class for our babies here because who knows what God is going to do in their life. Well, already we've seen the first example. The king of Israel, Joram, he's kind of like in, sort of in, but sort of out, but he has no power for living. On the other hand, we've seen this little girl whose faith has been tested by difficult circumstances. But as far as we can tell from this story and the words of Jesus, it is her faith that is turning the whole thing. And now I want to talk to you about the seeker, Naaman. Naaman was not from Israel. He didn't know anything too much about the true God. He was a Syrian. And the Bible tells us five things about him. You're going to need all the fingers on your hand for this one. There are five things about Naaman that Scripture tells us about him that are good and introduces him to us. He is a commander. In fact, he's a top commander. 
His boss, the king, loved him. He was a valiant soldier. He was a celebrity. He was popular with the people. And then this weird one, God had been helping him. That's unusual. Just, we typically think of God helping Israel, which he did, but Syria was Israel's enemy. And Naaman was not a God follower, but God had been helping him. See, that's the thing. So many of us look back in our lives when we were not God followers, and yet we still see the hand of God in our lives helping us. Now, that's great five things to have. Let's go through them again. I mean, he was a commander. His boss loved him. He was a valiant soldier. He was a celebrity, and God had been helping him. Five great things. But the Bible says on the other side of the ledger, he had leprosy. You know what that added up to? It added up to he had leprosy. See, leprosy was the worst thing that anybody could get back in those days. I don't want to, I've got, according to that clock, I've got six minutes, so I'm going to have to go through this real fast, but I'll try to give you some idea. Leprosy is not what it is today, the biblical definition of leprosy. Basically, what would happen is a person would begin to notice little white lesions on his extremities. And then over time, he would understand or she would understand that um, he had leprosy. And again, it was the most feared thing. And and not only was it a disease, it was a social stigma. In fact, when you read the stories of Jesus, he's always healing sick people, but the Bible always says he cleansed lepers because lepers were seen as dirty and they had to leave society. And what would happen would be as that disease attacked the digits, they would actually begin to deteriorate. But on top of that, they would lose sensation in those attacked digits, and oftentimes they would do damage to themselves and not even know it. A person with leprosy could pour hot, scalding water, boiling water on his hand and not feel the pain. A person could kick something sharp and gash their foot and not even know that they'd hurt themselves. And so because of that, these people dealt with the decay of their skin plus the damage that they would do. And because this disease was so awful, people had to withdraw from society. So here is Naaman. He is commander of the most powerful army in the world. And I'm sure that when his regalia and his uniform covered his body, people could not see the leprosy. But down below there was leprosy. How many of that us does that speak to today? You look very good. You look very nice. You can live your life. And everybody thinks you're okay. But deep down inside, you got a problem. You know, so many people have come to New Spring through the years who have not been God followers or even paid God attention, but during a dark season of their life, they would be open to answers. And I think that's Naaman. I don't think he would be interested in God on most days. He was a, he was a military man. He was a soldier. But having to put his uniform on over the leprosy caused him to be interested in God. And, and this little girl that works in his house, that's the maid for his wife, he you know, the one thing goes to another, the little girl tells, the, tells her boss, and she says, you know that little girl that we got from Israel? She says, there's a prophet over in Israel that could do something about this. And Naaman's like, yeah, sure, I don't believe that. I don't believe that kind of hocus pocus, but he didn't get any better. And after a while, you know what? There's no better idea. Have you ever been there in your life where you think you knew what was going on, but all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you realize you don't have any better suggestion than God? I've been there. And so Naaman goes to the king, and he says, I know this sounds fantastic, and I usually wouldn't go in for this kind of stuff, but I got a little girl in my house, and she says, there's a prophet over in Israel, and he can cure this thing, and I've been to all the doctors, and I'm not getting any better. And 
I think maybe I should go see him. And the king of Syria says, well, it sounds like a political thing to me, so I'm just going to send a letter to the king of Israel. He's scared death of me anyway. I'm going to send a bunch of jack and some clothes over there and a letter. So go over there, and, and I'm going to tell the king of Israel to heal you. So Naaman gets in his motorcade and gets over there to Israel, and he goes to the king, and the king is like, I don't know. king's freaking out because he's got one foot in and one foot out. He has no power for living. But thank God, Elisha, God's man, hears that. And he tells the king, hey, stop tearing up your clothes. Just send him to me. So now here comes Naaman. You know, he's got the flags on, his, on all the cars and limos and the lights flashing. And I mean, the motorcade pulls up into Elisha's subdivision. <laughs> and Naaman gets up. He's an important man. And Elisha, God's been, I, I did a series on Elisha one time. Uh, we wouldn't do another one someday. It was called G- G2, Generation 2. Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. He just sends his, one of his assistants out and says, go dip in the Jordan River seven times. You'll be okay. Now look at this. What are you going to do when God's word doesn't make any sense to you? I mean, think about it for a moment. The Bible tells us that we're all sinners, and the only way to have a relationship with God is through the fact that Jesus came and lived a life you couldn't live, and then he hung on a cross, and the blood that came out of him was a payment for your sins, and if you'll put confidence in what Jesus did for you, go to heaven. I will be the first to tell you that doesn't make near as much sense as joining a particular church. I'll I'll be honest with you. It makes a whole lot more sense to just say, I'm going to go to this particular religion, and I'm going to learn their system, and I'm going to go through all their hoops, and maybe that will get me into heaven. Listen, I'll be the first to tell you that on on, on an even basis, that makes more sense to me. I mean, how do you get to heaven? You just go out and try to fix all the things that are wrong in your life and be a better person. That sounds like it makes a lot more sense than believing in somebody who died 2,000 years ago and that the blood that came out of their body paid for your sins and you put confidence in that person, that person rose from the grave. I can tell you 10 dozen things that make more sense than that. What are you going to do? And it isn't just that. I mean, even as a Christ follower, are you going to be able to have faith in God when God says something that goes 180 degrees away from what this culture says? Naaman, he's all prepped, and he's pulled into Elisha's neighborhood. This prophet's going to come out. I mean, if you look at what, look at this. Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would come out to meet me. I'm a big guy, he said. I expected him to come out, wave his hand over the leprosy, and do some kind of mojo. I expected. That is the problem with faith, because God never works quite like we expect him to work. In fact, the Bible says in Isaiah 55, 8, my thoughts, the way I put things together, God says, not your thoughts. It's not the way you put things together. And he said, my plans are not your plans. Well, Naaman is mad. He he had expectations of how I expected God to work. I'm a big guy. This prophet's going to come out and say, oh, Mr. Naaman, I'm so glad. I'm so honored that you came to my house. Wow, I don't usually get important people like you, and this is so cool, and you're such a big guy, and because you're such a big guy, I'm going to do something really cool for you, and I'm going to, like, wave my hand and and do mojo, and and, and you're going to be, and Naaman's like, tells me to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. I mean, look at what he said. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana, and the Farpar better than the rivers of Israel? I mean, listen, guys, I want to hand Naaman this one. The Abana and the Farpar were crystal clean rivers that 
flowed off mountains over sand, and the water was crystal clean. Jordan, on the other hand, one of the messiest rivers in the world. Some of you have seen it. It churns up silt and filth. I mean, Jordan was a dirty river. Naaman's like, my rivers are better than this river. He's right. He'll win the point, but he's going to go home with leprosy. For all of us today who look at the God of the Bible and say, versus the culture itself, God's word doesn't make any sense, I'm going to hand it to you. There are a whole lot of things that this world says that seems to make more sense than what God says, but never forget that if we decide to walk away from God, we will walk away with our leprosy. We'll win the point, but we'll walk away with the same dysfunction that we walked in. Thank God Naaman had a a lieutenant who said, Sir, if he had told you to do something difficult, like if he said go on a quest for the Holy Grail, you'd have done it. If he said, you know, go go give all your money, you'd have done it. And, And he just asked you to do something simple. See, that's the thing. God hasn't asked you to do something difficult. He's asked you to believe. And how many of us say, well, it can't be that simple? And yet, God, that's all God is asking. He asked Naaman to go dip in the Jordan River, and so he did. And I hope God kept this on videotape because I would just love to see this, Naaman dipping in this filthy river seven times. But remember, there's nothing curative in the Jordan River. It was just Naaman needed to be humble, and he needed to trust the Word of God. And that is the same thing that is true today. Mark needs to be humble and bow before God, and I need to trust God like that little girl and believe that when God says something, he is able to do it. That is all God is looking for. He is looking for lives of people who will trust him. And when he says something, say, I am convinced. I don't think it's true. I believe it's true. I'm going to do the accounting, the mental accounting, as though what God says is fact. And when you do that, when you do that, life changes. I love to see the story when Naaman comes up out of the water seven times. The Bible says his flesh was like the skin of a little girl. And he goes back and he finds Elisha. And like I said at the beginning of the talk, it's kind of cute. He doesn't, he doesn't understand the worship of Jehovah very well. He just said, I want to take some dirt back from this place. <laughs> he said, when I worship in the future, I'm not worshiping any God other than Jehovah. Why? Because he came to Israel with the skin of a leper and he went home a different person. And that's all God is asking from you today. To not think he's true, but believe he's true. Not think Jesus died for your sins, but to believe it to where it becomes fact in your life. To not think God's word is true, but to believe God's word is true. That is why over and over and over, the Bible says, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I want to ask you today, have you believed? Have you believed in Jesus? Have you put your confidence and faith in him? If you haven't, I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Every weekend we pray. I pray a prayer. But this is a prayer of faith. This is a prayer of belief. And so if you're ready to do that, would you just all bow your heads with me for a moment and let's pray together. Dear God, Like Naaman was a leper, I know I'm a sinner. 
And like Naaman couldn't fix himself, I can't save myself. But I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe his blood paid for my sin. I believe Jesus rose from the grave. And because I believe, I ask Jesus to be my Lord and my King. Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, please don't leave without getting a gift. I have a bag for you. All you got to do is take your talk to us card back to any info center, any place on the campus, and just say, I pray with Mark. In this bag is a Bible, just like I preach from, a DVD, and a book I wrote that will help you take your next steps. Free. Nobody will hassle you. Just please come and say, I pray with Mark. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next weekend.